Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome back Pat Crowley. Pat Crowley is founder and CEO of Chapul Farms, building and scaling modular insect farms. His diverse career path has had a singular focus of ensuring the food and water availability to future generations with previous positions as a climate modeler, hydrologist, and agronomist in public and private sectors, and has more than 15 years working in the field of sustainable food and agriculture. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me again, Raj. Pat, I am very excited to dig into this conversation. For those of you that remember Pat with Chapul Farms, we left off last year when we were speaking about black soldier flies, and we're going to dig into more detail regarding the black soldier flies, where Chapul is on its journey, and even discuss the market. So Pat, how's the last year been for you at Chapul Farms? It's it's been wild. It's been quite a journey. It's been great. Yeah, we've we've built a lot. We built our team and um I can't believe how much has happened in, in just a year now since speaking with you a little over a year. Well, I don't know if it was you, but I've sure been thinking about insects a lot this year. I feel like every week, if not every month, I'm seeing new announcements regarding the changes in I'm not gonna say technology, but perhaps the idea of insects as um, consumption for animals and even potentially for humans. There's been some talk about changes in the law overseas. Can you share what you're seeing on your end regarding the market? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we're seeing yeah substantial milestones accomplished both on that regulatory side and the market side. You know, it was it was always in the headlines or for the past several years they've been in the headlines from some of the larger uh, market leaders in let's say aqua feed. You know, black soldier fly go into several sectors pet food, poultry, aqua feed, but just isolating into aqua feed, you have you know, some of the larger uh, aqua feed providers saying there's just not enough feed to support the growth of, of aquaculture and their plans. And insects happen to be one of the most promising alternative feeds. And so you, you've had that kind of looming, but now you're seeing a lot more market players actually incorporating into their feed. Um, and, and we are at that balance of, of supply and demand at this point. And so it was always kind of speculated this would be a, a supply-driven uh, market, which I think we've gotten there at this point. And I think there was some talk about regulatory changes in Europe regarding black soldier flies or regarding insects specifically? Yeah, very recently there was some uh, a regulatory approval for the incorporation of, of insects, three insect species into uh, human food. And, and they have a little different regulatory pathway uh, in, in the EU than we do here in the U.S. And so that was a, a pretty um, monumental event. So now that will open up the market where, you know, the, the technology and the companies have been you know, at, the, at the starting line antsy for this moment. So I think we'll see the edible insect market really grow in the EU and then, you know, translate over to the U.S. at some point. <laughs> Which three insect species? So crickets, mealworms, and grasshoppers have just been approved for human consumption. So excuse my ignorance, what's the difference between grasshoppers and crickets? 
Yeah, no, it's, they're, they're both orthoptera and then catadids are also orthoptera. So they're all a certain um, variety, but they, uh, the difference is grasshoppers fly. They're a little longer body, have broader wings and they fly and crickets more hop and they use their wings uh, for chirping actually, and less for flying than grasshoppers. Now, the changes in the regulations in Europe regarding insect feed, is it because of they're seeing issues with being able to feed the current population on the current um, farming or the current crops available? Yeah, it was a, a multifaceted um, uh, rationale for it. And the, the human side, it, it makes sense for the, the human nutrition um, available uh, to in these in these products, and f- so from that side, and then also on the environmental impact, yeah, that was a, a primary driver as well. But it just kind of across the board just makes sense you know, from a watershed perspective. So it's, it's not just the environmental footprint; it's also the the health benefits, and it's also the ability to consume you know waste uh, feedstocks that are headed to landfill. And so it's this really kind of multifaceted rationale for what is essentially more circular food product. Now, I believe in my research, I found that you've been working on some innovation here locally in the U.S. too. Can you share what that is, what you've been working on? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's pretty exciting. We just launched uh, the Center for Environmental Sustainability uh, through insect farming. And so that's a, a center, a uh, conceptual center that's funded by the National Science Foundation, uh, three research universities here, so Texas A&M, Mississippi State, and Indiana, Purdue. Uh, and then uh, industry as well. And so industry funded half of it and, and the National Science Foundation funded the other half for a multi-million dollar research center now. Um, and, I, and I think one of the one of the things I'm really excited about is the, the core mission is to uh, advance the basic research around insect agriculture because where we're at is, is heavily skewed towards applied research. And they're, one of the directors of, of Texas A&M that, Dr. Jeff Thomas, he uses this uh, metaphor that we're, we're in the dark, throwing darts at a dartboard, but with applied research, but we're hitting the bullseye. It's remarkable. You know, all the work that we're doing, investigating, you know, gut microbiome benefits, it's, it's working, but we still don't have that underlying basic research to really advance, um, you know, turn the lights on in the room so we can start firing these darts off a little more strategically. Um, so it's, it, I, I like that it, it has that balance of, you know, longer term research focus, uh, as well as industry needs. And what does the industry recognize as some of the biggest needs to really accelerate the growth of insect agriculture? And so, you know, this, it, it, the formation of the center really um, is, a, is a key milestone to just breaking this industry open like in terms of, of the research advancements and, and all of the different directions that we're taking it. And so we're, we're looking at you know, the, the feedstocks, which, which waste streams can we accomplish and address with insects and all the way down to you know, the, the, the genetic expression of the insect via the, the diet that it eats. And then all the way down to the frass and the insect manure and the microbial populations that can um, address some of the, the needs for more prolific life in our soil, for example. But I, I think one of the most fascinating things that, you know, we had our kickoff meeting and the the bow that ties around all the research essentially is this this concept of the interactome. So I don't know if that's a, a new vocabulary word for you or not, but I'm enamored with it at this point. Um, and, it, and basically, you're you're evaluating not just the inner the individual components of you know, a, a diverse ecosystem, whether that's a microbial ecosystem, whether that's a, 
a larger you know, mammalian ecosystem, um, the, the value in the interaction between those organisms and, and how they all interact with each other and in that, that really kind of quantification of how collaboration is, is much more effective often than competition from a kind of a uh, in vitro based research approach where you're looking at you know, one organism via another organism but you're looking at in the complexity of this diverse ecosystem with multi-variable interactions between all of it. So it's, it's just so endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Is the term interact dome? Interact tome. Tome. T-O-M-E? Correct. Yeah. I have not heard of that. I think it's pretty incredible. And maybe just because it's been on my horizon recently, or I've been thinking about it a lot, I'm seeing or having more and more conversations about, I guess it would be systems thinking taking a, a broader look rather than a siloed approach about the, to your point, interaction between some of these insects and the broader ecosystem. And I, and I think that it, it's much needed in, in many areas of life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the underlying conclusions of a lot of that is, you know, that, uh, more activity is often beneficial. So more diversity, more biodiversity, whether we're talking about our soil, whether we're talking about our gut health, you know, there's kind of these conclusions that a lot of that research will take you to is that in collaboration, you know, the value of it, you want more interaction, you want greater diversity. And so that's at odds with the direction of, you know, in our case, the agriculture that we're targeting, uh, but, but same in, in healthcare and in, in, in food and food production, um, that, that decrease in biodiversity has just enormous ramifications down downstream, whether that's human health, whether that's planetary health, you know, carbon in our atmosphere, overwhelming. Absolutely. Now you mentioned, um, you mentioned waste streams as feedstock. Can you give an example of what kind of waste streams, where those waste streams are going right now and the potential opportunity to divert them in the future? Sure. Yeah. So if you look at, um, let's say beer production, you have the, the spent grains um, that come out and, and those you know can sometimes go into cattle feed, but often you can't transport that because it's really wet um, and it, it costs a lot of money to transport water. And, and so the, the solution for that is to you know feed it immediately to an animal or, um, or spend immense amount of energy to dry it out and then store it and then ship it. And so you know, our model being Let's just consume it on site. And that first solution, feed it to animals immediately, come on site in its wet form. Don't spend the energy to remove that moisture, uh, but feed it directly to the, the insects in this case. So another example can be you know, pre-consumer food waste. Um, and, and I say pre-consumer just from a regulatory standpoint. And post-consumer is, is off limits in terms of feeding that to insects. But um, all of the, the waste that you throw, in, throw out in your home, um, you know, that, that currently, if you don't have a composting system, just goes to landfill. Uh, another one, there was a, there was a contest by a big, um, pomegranate juice company, you know, after they make the juice, they have all the pressed pulps. So a lot of those pressed pulps are great feedstocks that are, are just underutilized or, you know, in some parts of the world, some of these, these plant production byproducts that just aren't edible, whether that's from palm production, whether, you know, uh, yeah, or it's, Sunflower seeds, uh, almond husks, these, these are undervalued and, and sometimes burned or, or sent to landfill. So am I hearing that there's an opportunity to build a black soldier fly farm near a, let's go back to the beer example, 
near a, a, a company that's brewing beer? Yeah, there's, there's already models of that outside of the United States, but yep, co-locate with the beer. And I mean, that, that's our model is to co-locate with feedstock, um, you know, specific to Chapool. Um, and it just makes sense from an energy standpoint. And so, yeah, co-locating with where these waste streams are, uh, is, is our model, but, uh, beer is, beer would be great from a cultural standpoint. <laughs> so Pat, we discussed the co-location of the potential farms, but can you share what you're currently doing at your farm in McMinnville, Oregon? Yeah, absolutely. So that's our, our innovation center. And it was very deliberately um, co-located with the FRAS, if you will, the end product of the FRAS. And so we're on a 600-acre regenerative farm. That's where our, our greenhouse and, and laboratory facility are for this innovation center. Um, and we're, that's the, the mandate of this particular farmer and landowner is to accelerate the growth of carbon sequestering, quote-unquote, technologies or, or solutions for, for soil health. Um, and so we're, we're alongside Dr. Lane Ingham at the Soil Food Web, and our, our FRAS products are going to go directly into um, the, that regenerative farm. We're going to be doing farm trials for you know, looking at the, the benefit of these, these life systems when added. Um, so we're bringing in multiple feedstocks uh, into this innovation center for building then co-located facilities. And so you know, looking at the wine industry, for example, we're, we're in the heart of the Willamette Valley. So taking those, the grape pumice from, from making wine, the grape skins, and uh, feeding those to the larva and then looking at what that does in the soil in a, a wine grape plant. And, and so it's you know, fostering that, that co-location circularity, but really deliberately grounded in, at the farm level and at the soil level. I'm excited to see what results you do find from the different feedstocks. It's going to be interesting to see, quote unquote, which feedstocks become the most popular over time. Yeah, well, that will. It's a, a fun journey I'm, I'm willing to sign up for. <laughs> <laughs> now, the last time we spoke, you went through the life cycle of the black soldier fly, but I'm trying to understand. So you'd, you'd co-locate a black soldier fly farm near a beer producer. You would feed the waste from the production to the black soldier flies. What would happen then? Yeah, so you, you feed that waste and, and you, we balance that nutrition, kind of getting back to that, that microbiology. It's, it's focused on, our systems are focused on creating really healthy populations of larvae. So we may do a one-step fermentation process to unlock some of those nutrients that are in that, that beer waste. Um, so that's, that, that's the first step. And then you feed that, and that's you know one to two day process. And then you feed that to the larvae. And we use a, a tray-based system. And so you, you put that into the trays that you then add the larva to, and they consume it in you know, an under two-week time frame. Um, so then in that tray, you're left with two things. You're left with the, the larva themselves and then their, their frass, you know, their, their manure after eating this. And those, that and, and heat energy um, are the, the three byproducts of that process. And uh, so then the larvae then go into animal feed markets right now, uh, and the frass goes into uh, soil amendment markets. Because that, that gut microbiome of, of the insect is, has played that role in natural systems and really is the a foundation of, of healthy soil in a natural ecosystem. You know, insect, insect frass is, is a keystone variable in, in healthy functioning soil conditions. And so we're, we're trying to get that frass back into our agricultural landscape as well. Now, you would ship the larva to the animals that need to be fed 
from a feedstock perspective. Can you give some idea of the quantity? Because I think when most people listen and think about black soldier flies, or their mind just goes to a, you know a house fly or whatever kind of flies they're used to. But the number of flies that you would have in a farm and just the quantity of larva, what, what that picture looks like? Can you paint a picture for us? Sure. Yeah. So take uh, an example facility of uh, it can it can take in 150 tons of feedstock every day. And so that's about a 150,000 square foot uh, farm, you know, indoor indoor farming is what we're doing. So they, these trays are managed in, in a stacked tray system. So that's a, you know, that's a fairly large building. Um, and then the outputs of that are about 5,000 tons of the larva per year um, dried, uh, if, if you do dry them out. And then you know, call it 15 to 20,000 tons of, of the frass coming out. Um, and so you, you take that 150 wet ton input and you, you drastically reduce it and, and concentrate it into these really high value premium products uh, with, with uh, you know, minimal amount of energy compared to other alternatives of, of food production. And, and, and when you're wa- using that waste, it's, you know, you're from a carbon and environmental stamp footprint standpoint, you're looking at you know, zero input, especially with the co-location. And what kind of animals is the larva a feedstock for? Yeah, so you kind of go back to that natural ecosystem. What what animals eat insects? And so, well, fish eat insects. You know, it's it's a major. Uh, it's like seventy percent of a trout's diet. Uh, birds eat insects, so they, they work well in, in chicken diets. Uh, humans evolved eating insects. They certainly work in human food as well. But uh, and then and then other mammals as well. And, and so the primary markets right now that are driving the industry are aquafeed and pet food market. So, you know, Aquafeed is, is a, over a $50 billion market in route to $75 billion by 2027, I think, the last numbers I saw. Um, and, and, but the feed inputs for that growth are, uh, are, are questionable. And so the industry is looking at you know, alternative proteins that have less of an environmental impact. And you have, there was a recent article, the Nature Conservancy said, uh, they they called for two hundred billion dollar investment to scale aquaculture, with the number one priority being scale alternative feeds that have minimal environmental impacts behind them. Um, so that 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 industry alone is is really carrying the growth. But then um, here in the United States, we also just have regulatory approval for black soldier fly larvae in dog food. And so you know the dog animal pet food markets always just I always have to do a double take on them. But uh, pet is you know over $40 billion market uh, and, and incredible environmental impacts associated with it as well. And so a lot of the major pet food companies are, are looking at black soldier fly as, as carrying the torch in some, in some regards of lowering their environmental footprint, you know, their, their carbon footprint for each product launched. Um, so we're, I would say, you know, at this point, pet food and aquafeed are really driving our industries. Going back to aquafeed for a moment, what are they currently using as their primary feed for in aquaculture? Yeah, you have um, fish meal was is a, a staple ingredient in um, in aquaculture production, and as that is you know recognized as a, a finite volume of of well, taking a step back, fish meal is usually produced by wild caught anchovy and herring out of the ocean. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a, there's certainly an environmental impact associated with that, but then it's also, these are finite populations 
And so the industry has been moving towards using less and less fish meal. And so that's where enter alternative proteins. But you know, as we've added these really low cost you know, soy, for example, into the aqua feed, we're, we're seeing, seeing the deleterious effects from an animal health perspective now. And we're also, this is kind of fascinating, we're, we're seeing um, increase in water quality in recirculating aquaculture systems. So where they're, you know, this, that's a major growth category of aquaculture is how do we protect water by making a circular water system? Um, but when you feed a, 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 a trout, for example, or a salmon, something that it, it didn't evolve eating, it didn't evolve eating heavily processed soy. Uh, so they, they get sicker. And so then that's when you add the other inputs that have kind of negative impacts with water quality, the antibiotics, and we're seeing much healthier, uh, the, the term is fecal integrity. <laughs> so we're seeing much healthier <laughs> fecal integrity with insect base uh, inputs. And so that's just, that's it's gold from a water quality perspective. <laughs> that's really interesting, fecal integrity. Yeah. yeah. So just to move off topic for a moment, recently I was reading that they are tracking, we're still in the age of COVID right now while we're interviewing here, or they've been tracking the surges in COVID by testing wastewater for COVID yeah. symptoms but it's in the fecal matter. So it, it's interesting what you can learn from fecal matter. Yeah, actually our town, I think is, is one of the ones being measured here in Oregon. Really? Yeah. I, th I think they're looking for antibodies. Well, I shouldn't speak to it outside of my expertise. Here, but <laughs> it's, it's neither one of us, anyway. neither one of us are experts. We're just hearing or sharing what we've read. That's it. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'd like to touch on is selfish reason, you know, Nexus's recent involvement with Chapul. Can you, Please um, shine some light on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, since our last conversation, as we've been developing projects and, and taking on this project developer role uh, for insect agriculture, there there was you know, Ben and, and the Nexus team were, were kind of there as as role models and advisors. And um, but when I would have communication with you know the the ecosystem project development, everyone always spoke so highly of Nexus um, in kind of a recurring piece of establishing a reputation for efficiency, authenticity, and, and execution. You know, they get, you guys are getting a reputation for getting stuff done. <laughs> and that's, that's really this critical need of, of our industry as well. And so, and, and kind of, that's what would, was a good marriage for Chapul is, is having that uh, deep expertise in uh, infrastructure development, but also in, in new technologies um, that, that are newer and, and we have to pioneer the space to some degree. Um, so it's just this uh, kind of perfect match from our end. And then um, we, we formalized the partnership and, and Nexus made an investment into Chipul. And um, I, I like one of the, you know, the, the pillars of the investments that, that you, you all have made thus far, of, you know, being the the people behind them. <laughs> and it's been just absolutely fun working with all of the Nexus team and, you know, highly competent individuals beyond their reputation. So uh, it, it's just been a fantastic match. And it, it was sort of seamless with the investment from our previous work that we had been doing together for project development. Well, I think you really picked the nail on the head when you mentioned pioneering. I do find the team here to be more pioneers than they are settlers. And I think that adventuring out into new technologies, as you mentioned, is something that's in the DNA of Nexus. You mentioned also new, te new technologies. What kind of new technologies are you either implementing or attempting to implement in the farms? 
you know, we're trying to make it as low risk of an investment as possible. So we're not implementing quote unquote new technologies into our, our farm system. We're trying to have them be as kind of a, a commercially demonstrated technology kind of as possible because the concept of insects are, um, are fairly new to a lot of investment from infrastructure capital. And so it, it's a, it's an easy one in terms of the, the technology to, to manage these populations of larvae. You know, we add some automation for efficiencies and we have, you know, very kind of cutting edge advancements in microclimate control systems, but um, these are all kind of proven technologies and, and where we're focusing our efforts, you know, specific to the insects is really in the microbiology and, and again, kind of that interactome and how does the, the microbiology of the feed inputs affect the growth of the larva? Does it affect, how does it affect the frass? How does that affect um, the, the plant health? And how does that affect the, the growth of carbon sequestering mycorrhizae? And, you know, from a, that full ecosystem perspective, we're really diving into the, the microbiology, uh, less on, you know, mechanical technologies, if you will. What kind of testing is being done, I guess, on the insects and the byproducts, the frass, et cetera, that are revealing some of the answers regarding the microbiome? Yeah, there's, there's, this is really kind of the, the fun research. We're starting to work with uh, the Haney test for soil health. Um, there seems to be a shift uh, towards more biologic inputs into our soil as opposed to chemical-based, um, especially, you know, fossil fuel deriv uh, derived chemical inputs. And as we're unlocking the benefit of, of microbiology for for plant growth and you know plant agriculture, uh, it's it, it comes back to that other theme of of biodiversity, and, and so um, what what various forms of bacteria or fungi can um, unlock the the nutrients that already exist in the soil. And so you know, you can dump as many chemical inputs as you want, but if there's if there's no water, if there's no you know, other life to make that bioavailable to the plant, it doesn't matter. And so it's it's this tandem effort of, of how do you make this these nutrients bioavailable to the plants? And you know, the answer is life um, and, and lots of it in a diverse form. So that a lot of the research that we're doing is you know, looking at how does the microbiology that comes from the gut microbiome of this insect that's played this role over time, um, how does that then facilitate NPK uptake for plants, and then how does that make them more productive, and how does that reduce the the immense cost of these chemical fertilizer inputs? So, focusing on the profitability of plant agriculture as opposed to uh, just yield growth. Now, black soldier flies seem to be the hero of the day. Hero of the day. Is there a close runner-up? <laughs> Uh, it, it, this is the pioneering and I, I hope in 10 years it's, it's dozens of, of species of insects. Um, but the next runner up is probably mealworms in terms of how fast it's scaling. Um, they, they play a much different role, but synonymous, they, they like a very dry feedstock. And so it's kind of this, um, collaborative, it's, it's easy to be collaborative because we're targeting different feedstocks, you know, <laughs> Uh, but yeah, mealworms, there's a fantastic company up in Washington called Beta Hatch. I think you've actually spoken with Virginia, but they're, they're doing great things with mealworms. And um, so, yeah, that, that's the next one. What is a mealworm? A mealworm is a larva to a beetle. Um, and if you go to any PetSmart or 
uh, feed company or pet food company, you'll find bag of, of dried mealworms um, and you can find them live for fish bait at most fish feed stores. But uh, the vast majority of those dried ones come from overseas, most of them from China. And so, um, and, and raised on waste streams. And so that, that's kind of a simple premise that we're trying to make is, hey, we, we already have a market for these products. We have waste. Why don't we just connect the loop more bioregionally? <laughs> I like that, bioregionally. Now, in our last interview, when you were when we were talking about crickets, you mentioned people curling their mouths when the idea of eating or consuming bugs or crickets. Have you seen that sentiment change this year? Um, I think so. I think so. Um, over the past two years, the the curling of the lip usually comes from um, you're in a place of, of comfort <laughs> to be able to exercise that. So I, I think people's comfort zones were radically challenged over the last couple of years. And so, um, you know, that's not, that's not the wildest thing people have heard in 2020 or 2020 <laughs> or experienced or seen. So, yeah, I, I think just the scale of the shock value has, has been altered. <laughs> I can, I can understand that. I think people are, you know, it's, it's the, um, it's the normalization of certain behaviors, I guess, over time. Yeah, hopefully, you know, that, that we knew that going into it, you know, when we were pioneering the market, it's, it's multiple impressions, you know, multiple touch points. You can't just tell somebody something once and, and convince them, especially when it comes to altering their diet. You know, that, that's on the other end of, of needing multiple inputs. And so it takes you hearing it from your friend and then seeing it on Instagram and then seeing it in the store and then seeing maybe multiple products and then just kind of these recurring impressions. And over time that can start to adjust your, your consumer behavior and your diet choices, but it's not, it's not a quick and easy. Here's the marketing campaign that will work to launch at once. It's all hands on deck kind of effort. And along those lines, what's some of the most interesting questions or reactions you've received when you tell people that, you know, you're CEO of Chapul and you're raising black soldier flies on a farm? <laughs> oh, that's a big library you're asking me to sort through. Um, some of the more, you know, honestly, more and more people are getting really excited about it and it's taking less time to explain the benefits. I think people are coming around to the, just the concept of circularity or the concept, the need for soil health or the need to address food waste and all of the, we don't have to sell the problem anymore. We, we can kind of sell just the solution. Whereas we used to have to sell the problem and sell the solution, which is much more time intensive. Um, and so I, I think there's an underlying just craving for a difference from business as usual. We, we know the food system is broken. We know these things. And there's just this kind of underlying groundswell that's ready, ready to explode, I think, for a lot more solution-based, you know, regenerative farming, what, throw your, your arrow at, at the terminology, permaculture, whatever that may be, people are, are ready to get behind things that, that incorporate uh, the bigger picture and long-term uh, planetary health and human health um, as, as contrary to a more extractive, exploitative model of food production. I would have to agree with that. I've seen so much more or so many more conversations this year, specifically around, you mentioned circularity, regeneration. And so I feel that, you know, whether it's the new attention, or not new attention, the additional attention to climate change or 
the recent infrastructure bill that includes climate change issues, but I think that the topic is becoming more and more popular. And so, as you said, people are open to different or new ideas. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. It's hard to quantify. And um, you know, we, we had this conversation recently, but uh, with, with some industry professionals about actually, it was at the center, the research center. I think it was it was uh, somebody had posed the question of like, okay, we have all this this market data and we have this consumer surveys, but how does that translate into behavior? Um, so it's a it's a gut feel almost that there's a, a tipping of the tides because we, we need to see that consumer behavior in in droves at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Well, speaking of tipping of the tides, and I asked you this question last time, but I'm going to re-ask the question. Let's fast forward to 2030. Newsweek, Time, Fast Company, pick your publication. It's going to write an article about Chapul Farms. What would you like the headline to read or what impact would you like to have seen Chapul Farms have made? Oh, wow. Um, it's funny. We internally, we struggle with headlines um, just with today because it's it, we're doing so much and so complex and that's that's the nature of biodiversity. It's hard to summarize it all, you know, um, but I, I think that would be, you know, loon shot thinking there's, there's no more food waste. We've eliminated the concept of waste. It, it, we've, it's no longer in our vocabulary. So I, it kind of is, if, if I have to summarize it towards a headline, I guess that, that's how I it. I really appreciate that. I interviewed a gentleman, I believe it was last year, maybe the year before, and his position is, what if we start out a supply chain with the idea of no waste? And I think that's a very, very interesting shift in thinking. Right now, we have waste because we accept it. But if we change our perspective to starting out with zero waste, what can we do or where could we end up? I, I think that's a that's a key because then by its nature, you start moving away from linear systems and you start moving towards circularity. Um, you know, that's, and we have fantastic models. You know, the term biomimicry, it's just turn your head to the side and look at a natural ecosystem. That, the concept of waste doesn't exist there. So how do we mimic that? Or how do we start interacting with it in more symbiotic way? <laughs> how, how do we invite life forms and life systems back into our human and civilization infrastructure, whether that's food production, whether that's waste management, whatever that is, let's, let's make peace with life around us. I love the idea. And I think it's a great place to end. Let's make peace with, how did you say it? Make with peace with? Life around us. Let's make peace with life around us. I look forward to the partnership between Nexus and Chipotle Farms and working with you and catching up with you again soon. Thank you so much, Raj. Always a pl pleasure. Likewise, Pat. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.